This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jeff Sparrow, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me. Um, So Jeff is a writer, editor and a broadcaster whose work frequents the pages of The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and many other local and international publications. He is an honorary fellow at Victoria University and won the 2019 Walkley Pascal Award for Art Criticism. Jeff has written a number of books, including Money Shot, A Journey into Porn and Censorship, No Way But This, In Search of Paul Robeson, and Trigger Warning, A Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. Jeff's latest book, Fascism Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre, is an up-close look at what fascism means today and what kind of threat it poses in our communities. This book makes compelling and urgent case for a new response to an old menace. It has been called part history lesson, part detective story, part deep dive into an online swamp, and it is said to be for anyone who wants to take a stand against hate, which is exactly the reason why you're here, Jeff, because, I mean, it probably isn't um, a book that we would normally talk about because we, we're quite varied but we talk fiction a lot of the times. But it really I came landed on my desk somehow and it was a subject I was particularly interested in and, you know, I want to know why we're such haters these days. So where, question, right? where, yeah, where do we begin? I mean, I think one of the things that I try to talk about in the book, well, I, I, I start from the simple point, but it's a point that has escaped a lot of people, I think, is that the, the, the perpetrator of the Christchurch massacre, and I, I try not to use his name, name, but we'll just call him the perpetrator, mm. um, describes himself in his manifesto as a fascist. Mm. He says explicitly, I am a fascist. Can we just talk about what fascism means? Yeah, so this is a really interesting point, isn't it? Because mm. even in a lot of the commentary, a lot of the journalists will refuse to use the term. We'll mm. call him an extremist or an anti-Muslim mm. um, agitator. But of course, fascism is a distinctive political tradition that arises in the 1920s, uh, most famously in Italy um, and then Germany, but and manifests in countries all over the world, including Australia in the 20s and the 30s. And interestingly, the, the perpetrator says that the person who inspired him the most was Sir Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists. People tend not to re- remember that there was, in fact, a quite strong at one time fascist movement within Britain. And what do, the fa- what do fascists believe in? Yeah, so, so fascism is a political tendency that is utterly hostile to any manifestation of social equality. It tends to appear in circumstances of political crisis and it tends to attract a kind of 
we might call a middle-class layer of people who are simultaneously terrified that they're about to lose the stake that they have in society and be driven down into the sort of masses, if you will, but they're also quite um, concerned about the power of of big business and financiers. So fascism has this strange two-directional aspect to it. It sort of kicks down and kicks up at the same time. And it's an incoherent ideology. It takes all sorts of different forms, but they're most it's mostly held together by two things. On the one hand, racism. So within Nazi Germany, for instance, anti-Semitism was the kind of glue that allowed the fascists to um, say that they were attacking Jewish business even as they beat up impoverished Jews in the ghetto. So there's this kind of incoherency that, that that was held together by racism. And the second key aspect about it is a commitment to redemptive violence. So the notion that violence is a good thing in and of itself and violence is the experience that is going to rehabilitate degraded nations that have fallen into a state of, of, of decadence and is also going to rehabilitate the people themselves. So fascists typically don't simply talk about defeating their opponents, they talk about destroying them utterly. Mm. And so there's a focus on things like street fights and violence and the experience of war as a key moment of, 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 of fascism. So that's the classical fascism of, of the 20th century. Of course, what we're dealing with now is quite, in some ways it's, it's the linear descendant of that, but it manifests in a different way. And in some ways that's what the book is about, how mm. it manifests differently in the 21st century. So in my darkest moments when I'm thinking about what's happening in the world, mm. I think very often that people can't seem to exist unless they hate something else. And I'm not just talking about fascism here. I'm talking about how divisive we are, that I can only succeed if I hate something. And you can bring that down, you know, right down to local community politics, local politics, you know, the reason why one person gets in over another is because he hates what somebody else is doing. And sometimes I wonder if fascism is human nature gone mad. I guess I would say that um, I think I said in my description that fascism tends to manifest in periods of crisis. Mm -hmm. And we're not in a situation like the 1930s, but in some ways we're in a kind of slow-burning version of that, that. We're in some crisis. That's right. We? That the world economy hasn't really recovered since the global financial crisis and it seems quite likely we're heading to another recession mm -hmm. um, around the corner. And, of course, there is this new element now of uh, climate change which leads, leads to this kind of prevailing sense of deep despair that so many people have, you know. I mean, you're sure you've had this conversation where you'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, I'm not planning to have kids because I think the future is going to be mm -hmm. so grim. So that despair, I think, is, is an element that fascism grows out of and militarises through this kind of hatred. So one of the things that was interesting about the Christchurch perpetrator is... He describes himself as a fascist, but he also says he's an eco-fascist. And so he takes this notion of um, climate change and says, yes, climate change is real and it's important and environmental de um, destruction is real and, imp and important and the way that we're going to stop it is by um, driving all the immigrants out of the countries and fortifying the borders and making sure that, um, you know, immigrants... Even though they have virtually no correlation. That... that, 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 that that's that's right. I mean, it's like other fascist doctrines. It's kind of incoherent. It's not a real solution. But you can see how 
in this period of despair where a lot of people who see themselves as liberals and progressives really don't think there's going to be very much we can do about climate change, here is someone who is saying, actually, you know, here is something we can do and what we need to do is we need to hate these people and we need to kind of mobilise against them with redemptive violence. And it's a horrific nihilistic kind of program, but you can see how it finds a hearing. But also too, um, I think the tools of communication have changed through social media. So, you know, I mean, these people I feel um, have a voice that perhaps they wouldn't have had a while back. You know, I mean, back in the days when I mean, you probably, like me, you're reading the comments on the Sydney Morning Herald or the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever, The Guardian, um, and back in the day it was letters to the editor, right? Mm. And there was a consideration that went into those um, emails, but there was also a curation as well, you know, a selection. And now we have in comments um, anybody can say what they think and feel and people seem to um, be quite angry and, and the level of hatred that you see I, I think is very frightening. Was it always there? <laughs> I was going to say that if you find the level of hatred in those forums frightening, you possibly don't want to have a look at places like HN, no. which is where these people come out of. I because that heard is, of HN recently. Yeah. I, I, I listened, I think it was Ezra Klein, I listened to a podcast, an American podcast, I'd never heard of it. Um, so this is next, next, mm. next level. And again, it's one of the main arguments that I make in the book. I mean, throughout the 20th century, there were fascist groups around, but they had real troubles building anything in terms of uh, organisation because they were so hated and despised that every time they appeared there would be protests and demonstrations and they couldn't make anything happen. With the invention of the internet, they discovered that they could use these dark um, these dark nooks of the internet to propagandise, to meet other people, to spread their ideas and they particularly found the troll culture that began to emerge on sites like 4chan and then later 8chan to be particular. Can you explain that to some listeners? Because, I mean, I, I, I only discovered it recently. Yeah, so when um, when the internet began to, um, to spread, there was a certain demographic of mostly young men, mostly highly intelligent but sort of downwardly mobile young men, socially awkward, who embraced a kind of... Um, nihilistic, transgressive humour based on pranks um, and and bullying where they became known as, as, as trolling. So most of the time trolling would be sort of more or less harmless, you know, the spreading of particular memes that other people wouldn't understand but insiders would get a giggle out of it and the yeah. joke would be that, you know, your parents didn't get this this thing but you you did but it it had an element like any of every kind of um bullying it had an element where bullying requires victims the victims would tend to be the usual victims so it would be women it would be people from different ethnicities it would be people of different sexualities and so it it it, it host it provided a um, congenial environment for the far right to start to to mobilise. And one of the things that um, the troll culture that developed on 4chan and then spread around the world did was it, it, so it, it's a website of chat amongst 4chan was a, a bulletin board. Yeah, yeah, and, right, and it's okay. where a whole lot of the sort of styles that are now taken for granted with the internet kind of developed right. on the amongst the young men. It was anonymous or at least semi-anonymous website where mostly people would post images, yeah. jokes, porn, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it, it developed a particular style where you could say things that were 
tremendously offensive and it would be unclear whether you meant them or not. That would be the humour. There would be this sort of transgressive kind of ironic humour and this level of irony that spread over everything made it very, very difficult to tell whether people were really embracing fascism or they were just telling Hitler jokes because they were offensive, if you see what I mean. Yes. And that then created a space where the real fascists could actually start to spread their ideas. And what happened from about 2016 with the election of Donald Trump and the role played in that election of um, with troll-oriented publications like Breitbart.com, the fascists began to think perhaps we can take this support that we've built off the internet and into the real world. Into the public space. Into the public space, I was going to talk about that and and, and even, you know, um, in reference to Australia, do you think sometimes leadership in terms of government gives permission for those voices? Do you think so Trump has given permission for people to hate quite publicly to hate, you know, refugees and to... I feel that that's happening here as well, that... Depending on who is up there in that leadership role, it kind of gives permission for people to come out and to be more brazen about their hatred. Yeah, I think that's a really um, good point. So one of the difficulties the fascists had after the Second World War was that anti-Semitism had become so, after the Holocaust and the horrors of the Second World War, became so taboo that you couldn't proselytise anti-Semitism in mainstream forums and rightly so. After 9-11 and the war on terror, we had a normalisation of Islamophobia, which by and large uses almost exactly the same tropes as classical anti-Semitism. You think of the sorts of things that, yeah, so they talk about, you know, the Muslims wear funny clothes, they have funny food, they have this strange religion, they're connected to crime. and, And so... The difference, they look be- different. They look different. And the difference between the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, you couldn't say, um, you couldn't run an anti-Semitic argument and get it published in a mainstream paper. You could run something saying we need to talk about the Muslim problem and get it published almost everywhere. So there was this normalisation of this. Precisely. Yeah. That's what's happening. Do you know, and I also think it is happening in our entertainment. Like if you look at, say, the bad guys in movies, in Hollywood films, for the longest time they were the Russians right? Um, and now they're the Arabs. And that's been perpetrated for a long time. Like we're seeing, you know, without a doubt that Arabs are the bad guy or, you know, um, and there's no differentiation about, you know, what type of Arab, it's just the Arab. And that seems to be a long, it runs parallel with what's happening, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, the other development that happened after 9-11, of course, was a new focus on border security, which again legitimated... I can't bear that word. Yes. So That phrase. (laughs) It it legitimated a kind of um, distrust, a kind of nativist distrust of, of foreigners. And we saw the rise and the mainstreaming of various racial populist organisations. So in Australia, the most obvious one would be the return of Pauline Hanson, but this is a trend that, that's that's um, happened all over the world. Donald Trump is another one where this sort of anti-immigrant, often anti... Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison as, as well. Now, Absolutely. So, now, I, th- I want to be careful here because I'm not suggesting that these people are fascists and one of the points I try to make in the book is that we need to be clear on the distinction between genuine fascism, which amongst other things has this commitment to redemptive violence that 
that even the Pauline Hansons of the world don't have. Yeah. But at the same time, these populist discourses and the fact that you could read them in the Daily Telegraph and you could see them on Sky made it much easier for genuine fascists to get hear it, but hearing. It because gives them permission. That's right. You, you would have people in the mainstream talking about nutty conspiracy theories that previously had once been the Israel dominant. Israel Falau. And, you know, and then we're talking about, you know, here's the Prime Minister meeting him and talking about, you know, um, freedom of speech. And on the other hand, he's trying to stop people protesting about the environment. I mean, which freedoms are we going to be selective about? Yes. And so the normalisation of this kind of speech, I think, is provides the backdrop for the growth of genuine fascists and what I'm trying to argue in the book is what the Christchurch atrocity was about, was an attempt to turn that support that these fascists have in the online sphere into a particular sort of intervention in the real world. And the form of that intervention is a gun massacre. And so one of the things that I think the perpetrator realised is that gun massacres are on the rise all over the world. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's actually quite... Thanks a, to the US? Yes, Prior to about 1960, gun massacres in the form we know them know were almost entirely unknown. They simply didn't happen. Since the, the 60s, they've become more and more common and more and more violent. Why? Well, it's a really interesting question and there's no particularly clear answer, but I think we can – I think one of the, one of the points that I – I suggest in the book is that um, in a world in which a lot of people, particularly young men, feel disempowered and um, impotent in their day-to-day life, deadly violence of the sort that's manifested in the gun violence has an attractive potential because it allows you to exert, even for a few minutes before you're killed by police or whatever, this kind of almost godlike power. All of a sudden, everyone is scared of you. All of a sudden, you're the one who's controlling what happens because you have this kind of weapon. And so I think what we've seen is the spread and normalisation of a particular script where um, maladjusted young men now know if things are going wrong for you, here is one way that you can act out your grievances. You can take up a gun and you can do these terrible things. And I think what the Christchurch perpetrator has tried to do is to harness that apolitical script for an explicitly fascist project. So he's recognised the connection between this apolitical phenomenon of of, um, gun massacres and the centrality of redemptive violence to fascism. And he's seen that the two of them can go together. And so with his own massacre, what he did was he deliberately made it a shout out to the people that he knew on these various online forums. So even he filmed the actual murders himself and in the footage of those um, of the actual massacre, he includes um, memes that have been circulating on um, on on 8chan. So these are like internal jokes for people. And so what that meant is that the 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 video became this sort of object of fascination that would be circulated amongst all of these people. And the calculation that he made was that of all of the people circulating, a small number would find this very attractive and think, well, here is this guy who went out in a blaze of glory, you know, fighting for his ideas and the white race and whatever. Maybe I should do the same thing. And we've seen now, I think what the the current count is, at least four other massacres um, in uh, America. The most recent one was in Germany, what they've been, um, four or five, anyway. Mm. But 
um, directly uh, referencing the Christchurch perpetrator and his massacre and copying the particular things that he did. Every time one of these things happens, if you go to those kind of um, websites like 8chan or some of the others, you can see people discussing it, discussing... um, whether or not the perpetrator got a high score, as they say, as in whether he killed lots of people or whether he didn't, what tactics he should use next time. And so these things have become self-replicating, if you see what I mean. And what's the difference between that and terrorism? Well, I mean, it clearly is terrorism. I think the, the, the idea was it was a particular... In fact, he says so explicitly in the manifesto. He says, you know, am I a terrorist? Yes, I am a terrorist. But the idea is, though, that... This is a particular form of lone wolf terrorism that is self-replicating. So the people involved don't have to have any direct contact with each other. They radicalise each other by imitating the previous ones that, that, that have taken place. And interestingly, in the various massacres that have followed, while the Christchurch perpetrator targeted mosques and most of the people that he killed were Muslims, some of the perpetrators since then, the, um, one of them in California targeted um, a synagogue, um, another one in El Paso targeted uh, Hispanics. The targets don't especially matter. What matters is A, racism and B, violence. And so part of the point of this, I think, is to inject a note of horrific violence into the mainstream because this, the normalisations and the acceptance of that kind of politically motivated horrific violence is necessary for fascism to grow as a mainstream movement, if you see Mm. what I mean. So Mm. I don't think we're at the point where these people are going to establish, you know, the Fourth Reich Mm. anytime soon, but... Um, what happened in New Zealand wasn't simply an aberration. It was part of a kind of conscious plan and I think it's um, almost certain that there will be other people who, um, who replicate it and that's why I think it's important to understand it because if, we, if we're going to stop these things happening in the future, we need to understand what is motivating them. But I, I can't see any, any hope of that with the current leadership, world leadership at the moment. You look at the US, you look at the UK and you look at Australia. I mean... You do look at New Zealand and I, and I don't know how you feel about how she handled that massacre but I feel that she took strong leadership from the very moment that it happened. But that's that's not the trend, is it? Well, as I say, um, fascism builds out of despair both personally and politically. I mean, you look at the young men who have been involved in these horrific incidents and they're mostly um, isolated, messed up individuals, but more generally as a a political movement, fascism builds out of this sense that things are hopeless in the world, that civilisation is falling apart, that there is no prospect of positive change, there is no notion that, you know, um, people can solve their differences and live together in a kind of humane kind of way. And so I think that there are various things that we can do to try to minimise the danger of fascism, but ultimately I think it does come down to being able to present a better kind of world to give people some sense of hope. So I mean, I mentioned before the centrality of climate change, not just in this massacre but in some of the others that have followed as well. Christchurch, uh, so climate change is being used as a rallying cry for the far right for the first time ever really. And um, Yeah, I find that that's such um, a contradiction because they're probably more likely to, to vote for the current leaders, aren't they? I can't see fascists voting, you know, Labor or Democrat, can you? Yes, yeah, so and it is a strange are, it is a, 
it is a strange contradiction and you, you'll see different perspectives of this on, on, on the far right. Um, an awful lot of the far right are still climate denialists. Yes. But um, as I said, when, when, when you look on the argument that, that um, he makes about climate, in a sense, he's not really concerned about the environment. He's using the environment as a way to mobilise people against yeah. minorities. But, I mean, to go back to the point that, that, that I was making, really the... Um, the best way to fight back about this is to try and um, present an alternative around climate change, you know, that you can understand why people are despairing. The world seems very bleak and despairing and the more that we're able to kind of solve these problems or at least put forward some positive alternatives so that kids aren't growing up thinking that they have no future and they may as well go out in a blaze of glory, we need to give them some sense that the world can be better tomorrow than it is today. But how do we do that? <laughs> Well, I don't think I I'm mean, going to. I don't think I'm going to solve. You, <laughs> I don't think know. I'm going to solve that problem in yeah. in in um in your podcast. But well, I mean, we know what we need to do to stop climate change. The question yeah. is, how are we going to mobilise the, the the will to do that? And 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 that's a kind of that's 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 a political challenge. But um, the problems that we face are problems that are being caused by human beings, and they yeah. are therefore problems that can be solved by human beings. And the task, I guess, yeah. for 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 progressives is to convince people that it is possible for, um, you know, for ordinary people to live together and to work together and to have a degree of, you know, human solidarity that, you know, we don't need to live in a world of all against all of, you know, of racial violence and, and, um, and, and so on. So that's the overweening perspective. I do also think that we need to start talking about how we respond to the growth of the online right and what kind of steps we might take to prevent these places becoming sites at which, you know, the future Christchurch massacres will emerge from. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that I guess is a challenge in itself. I mean, even if we just have a look at Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, I mean, until re I mean, he, recently he just said he's not going to remove any information that's not true. Um, yeah, so, yes. you know, I mean, they've got these vehicles where, you know, fake news, lies, whatever you want to call it, propaganda, um, is free to all. Yes, and um, the young men who are... Are key to this kind, this 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 online fascist tendency are usually very technologically um, yeah. adept, and so are able to get around most of the attempts by governments or corporations to shut them down. So it's by no means a a simple um, problem. But the argument that I make, I guess, is that the first step is public knowledge and. Awareness. Now, it's not going to solve the problem in and of itself, but one of the difficulties so far is that because this sort of online blue operates on this kind of level of ultra irony, it's almost incomprehensible to people who are not versed in the sort of mm. the online realms. And so there was a lot of discussion in the immediate aftermath of, of, of Christchurch about what the role of the media should be in covering these uh, uh, events. And a lot of media took the line that, well, we should give minimal coverage to the kind of ideas and, and platforms of these people. Whereas I would say that, in fact, we have got an obligation and a responsibility to educate people about who these um, who these online fascists are and how they work. Because if we don't, then how do you know if your kids are encountering these people? How do you know if, you know, you're running across some of the memes that they're, mm. they're using? So ignorance never helped anybody. Mm. What we need to do is understand this threat um, in order 
um, for us to mobilise against. So it. how did you feel that um, Jacinta Ardern um, handled the massacre? How did you feel about that? Uh, I thought she responded with a, a, a great deal of um, dignity, dignity and empathy into an obviously horrific... Um, an obviously horrific situation and I do think that the media clearly does have to conduct itself with sensitivity and resist the kind of sensationalism that is the first you know, port of call for a lot of people, particularly in a relatively small country like New Zealand where so many people lost their lives and so many, were, um, so many others were, um, were, were traumatised. At the same time, I do think that we need to conduct a serious project of education around what the far right is and what it represents. So you, you, know, you only have to think about the Australian situation where we had, you know, uh, various um, overt fascist groups that were trying to mobilise in Melbourne and elsewhere, some of whom who had connections with um, the Christchurch perpetrator. He'd been in con contact with them through social media. These people would... Um, on a number of occasions were invited onto mainstream TV platforms, both the ABC and commercial channels, where they were just introduced as a, you know, as an anti-immigration activist, as if that was just a normal point of view, even mm. though these people were, you know, uh, the, the leader of one of these groups, someone who says that, you know, pictures of Adolf Hitler should be hung in every school. And part of the problem, I think, is that a lot of the journalists didn't actually know the politics well enough to to be able to know what they were dealing with. Whereas, again, one of the points that I, that, that I, that I try to make, it's very easy to, uh, for Liberals to say uh, people on the far right are morons, that they're idiots, that they're stupid or that they're just mad, crazy. Now, in one sense, anybody who does the sort of thing that the Christchurch perpetrator did, there is in one sense that they don't inhabit the same sort of moral universe that the yeah. rest of normal people don't do things like that. But... Uh, this man is very intelligent, he's very well read, he knows the history and theory of fascism very, very well and he has a conscious plan that he set out to implement and that plan is working. He wanted his act to be imitated by others, it's being imitated by others. He wanted his material to circulate, it's circulating everywhere. His name has become a meme all through those far-right far circles and this wasn't an accident. He set out to make it happen and it is happening. So... I think journalists then have to have an equivalent degree of sophistication. They can't just say, I don't need to trouble my mind about this or I don't need to engage with this because it's horrible or, or, or whatever. Um, because if they don't, you end up with situations where, you know, people from the fascist right get free, pub free, free publicity and get treated as if they were a normal part of the democratic process when these are people who want to kill minorities. That's what mm. they want to do. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, but that's a challenge in itself and obviously we can't solve this on a podcast, but even if you have a look at our media institutions, I mean, it's just so biased. You know, there's very few independent and where there are, I mean, that industry is under threat as well. So it seems to me it's 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 so complex on so many levels that, I mean, yeah, I mean, great for you to talk about it and to vocalise it and for us to think about it, but how it's going to get that out there as a message, um, I, I don't know. Well, you know, you or I can't control what Rupert Murdoch yeah. And his employee, employees do. But what I mean, we can, he's part of the problem. We, what we can do, though, is we can educate ourselves. And what we can do is to talk to our friends and um, our neighbours about, you know, the 
about this threat and what it represents and to try to come to terms with it. And I think that the change that we need to see around these issues will come from the bottom up. It won't come from the top down. There's no one coming to save us. We have to do it ourselves. And, um, I mean, that that goes not just for the question of... um, of these fascists, but things like climate change yeah. as well. One of the of difficulties is so many of us feel that there's nothing that we can do. Well, as soon as you start to do things, you find other people who feel similarly and it's much easier to work alongside other people and that's how where, the, where these things begin. I mean, we shouldn't, you know, like we shouldn't kid ourselves either. The world is in quite a dark place in... in, in, in um, in many ways, but at the same time, it's not Germany in 19, 1933. These people are not about to take power or anything uh, like that. You know, they might and they probably will conduct more terrorist acts, but they are fairly, you know, they are a small marginal tenancy. So it's everything is not lost. But um, I think, as you say, that we can't expect the media to do it for us. In some ways, it's the role of, you know, people like you and your listeners to educate the media. Yeah. To say, you know, like, well, if you're if they're featuring somebody who's who they are saying is just an activist with some interesting ideas, to say this person is a fascist, they are mm-hmm. a genuine fascist. But I think the media made Pauline Hanson. Yeah, well, I think that's true as well. I mean, if you go back to the to yeah. the nineteen nineties, um, there was a brief look, time yeah. where she, where she was um, she was a uh, in every uh, tabloid paper almost. Yep. Constantly, and then after she dropped out of politics, she was kept in the public eye by which was on that dancing show, yeah. wasn't she? Um, yes. yeah, yeah. So I think that's true as well. Yeah. And I guess that goes to the same point that they're not going to do it for us, so we have to do, do it, it for ourselves. Jeff Sparrow, thank you so much. You've given me a little bit of hope um, and incredibly interesting to talk to. Uh, the book is terrific. Congratulations. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.